Is money good or bad? Are investors evil? Can companies be unethical or are there unethical sectors altogether? Today we tackle the thorny issue of morality in investment choices. I'm your host, Osa Boshian, and this is High Grade. This is High Grade. You think you're rich, uh, but in reality you're not rich. The resource curse theory takes a short-run phenomenon and projects it to a long-run outcome. The most important drivers of investment are the quality of the resource, the infrastructure that's available, and the governance environment. Industrial development accelerates the speed of social change. Creative destruction, people losing, people winning. What we need to fix is politics, not the resources. Welcome to High Grade and this Natural Resources podcast. Immanuel Kant postulated that the only thing we can judge is intention. True goodwill is good, regardless of the outcome. A contrasting philosophical view, however, contests that results matter most. In that sense, the right thing to do is what effectively leads to the greatest good. I'm here with John Houchin, Secretary General of the Council on Ethics for the Swedish National Pension Funds. His job is to discern good from bad, and there are billions of dollars at stake. John, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Wasa. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about investment, but your background is actually in environmental science and human ecology. Quite different, isn't it? Yeah, well, quite honestly, I have a background in heavy industry. I, I grew up in, in Westeros, which is a town outside Stockholm, and I grew up in a company called ABB. Mm. Uh, my dad, who's who's your typical Australian, he, he moved to Sweden before I was born, and he came from the steel industry. So I have a long history of, of really heavy industry. But uh, uh, like many Swedes, I got involved in the environmental movement in the 1980s when I was young. Mm. Uh, and I, I traveled the world, I traveled China in the early 90s, and I came back to my mother and I said, look, I'm not going to do electrical engineering, I'm not going to work for ABB, I'm going to do I'm going to do sustainability. And this was 1991. And she said, you're never going to get a job, she said. And I said, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do sustainability. This is what I'm going to do. So it was a bit of a rocky road to, to find that way. Uh, luckily, ABB pulled me back uh, in the late 1990s when I was studying. Uh, and during one of the meetings uh, with ABB, I was doing my master thesis at ABB. We were questioned by one of the institutional investors called Storebrand, who'd set up a sustainability fund uh, and picking the best companies in the world to that sustainability fund in the 1990s. And I thought, ooh, this is interesting. It was the only time I saw ABB being a bit nervous. So I decided to to join the financial markets and to, to join the financial institutions to see what uh, we could develop within that framework. And you very early on were driven to evaluate companies' performance sort of beyond profit. Um, tell us about the Green Index. I left ABB uh, and I co-funded a company called Green Index. It was uh, set up, they were setting up the first climate change index in the world together with the Swedish insurance company Folksam. Mm. So we were asking all the companies on the Stockholm Stock Exchange, and this is 1999, 2000, 
to disclose all their carbon data. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was the predecessor to, to what today is known as the Carbon Disclosure Project. And obviously this, this was uh, quite controversial. Uh, there was a lot of criticism, a lot of discussions regarding this disclosure request. But we learned a lot. And I think 20 years on, I, I mean, today every company is disclosing their carbon data and footprint and transition plans, and you have it. Uh, so it's been a long ride. And since then, I've continued in different roles to, to work with tools, how to evaluate uh, good companies in terms of responsibility and sustainability and not so good companies in terms of uh, responsibility and sustainability. Let's talk more generally about the role of companies in society. Some segments of society, they often blame the world's problem on the greed of the private sector. Are companies evil or what should be the role of companies in society? No, I don't, I don't think companies are evil. Companies, companies are there to perform a special service, be it producing a, a physical product or to, to give a service to different parts of society. If you use the terminology of, of physics, it's, it's a function. Uh, and we can decide whether that function behaves in a better way or in a slightly worse way. And I think that's basically what I spent my life trying to do. Uh, so no, I, I don't think there are any evil companies. I, I think there are companies that do better. And I think there's companies that could do better. Mm. So not evil, but what about ethics? Are there intrinsically unethical sectors? I, I think ethics are complicated. But I mean, basically, if you look at, at the world, I mean, it's a global marketplace we live in. And the decision on what, what is allowed on the global marketplace, if we speak generally about legal things, we're not talking about the illegal sectors. Uh, I mean, that's decided. If you look at, at the Swedish national pension funds that I operate with now, with, with the Council on Ethics, I mean, that's basically decided by, by the government of Sweden, what, what kind of uh, products we allow in Sweden and what kind of products we don't allow in Sweden. So, uh, and, and that, I think, to be honest, that more or less looks the same all over the world. There are differences coming to the forefront right now. Uh, for instance, like uh, cannabis is, is a typical topic, which is now legal in Canada and a few other places in the world, uh, whereas it's obviously illegal in Sweden. And there are conventions that decry them to be illegal as well, which we base our decisions on. So ethical products, unethical products. I think, I think the legal frameworks of, of the world decides that. Companies produce what people buy. Uh, should we blame producers or the buyers? Well, I think companies produce what people want to buy. <laughs> uh, so I think we should, should maybe ask ourselves uh, and I think that discussion uh, has been ongoing for quite a while. What do I want to buy? Mm. I mean, in essence, I think the sustainability movement that is that has grown rapidly over the last 20 years is, is very much focused on consumerism as well. And I think that will only continue. I mean, we're moving into a very complicated world and uh, it's going to be a very relevant discussion. You are what you consume. Mm. And, and I think that will continue. Absolutely. Let's move on and discuss your job at the Council on Ethics for the Swedish Pension Funds. 
what is the role of the council? So about the same time as uh, as we started Green Index and we released the first climate change index in the world, uh, the Swedish national pension funds got new legislation and they were told to take ethical and environmental consideration with, uh, without uh, infringing on the overarching goal of high returns. Mm. And this was 1999. Uh, so we developed uh, the norms screening procedure where we screen companies for norms breaches. And in the end, we're looking for breaches of conventions that Sweden has signed. That was the, the model we started building 20 years ago. You can either exclude companies based on that. The buffer funds that, that run the Council on Ethics decided that engagement was the key uh, driver on this and have been engaging with companies where there is deemed to be norms breaches. You don't really need to use complicated terms like norms and conventions. We simply talk about incidents and engaging on incidents. Mm. And 15 years ago, companies were a bit unaccustomed about investors calling them and talking about corruption, uh, human rights breaches, environmental incidents or accidents, more or less irresponsible behavior, if you put it that way. I think these days companies are much more aware of not only investors, but a large group of stakeholders demand mm. action and sort of an active approach by companies. But we still have a lot of work to do on a daily basis. And generally speaking, is there a trade-off between profits and ethics? The conclusion I came to a long time ago is that, I mean, where the world is heading and, and we're continuing down that path, you need to be really smart. You need to understand sustainability. You need to understand responsibility. And you need to uh, understand the demands of all stakeholders. And you need to put that compass in function to survive. And I honestly believe you're not going to be able to survive uh, in the future. You're not going to be able to make money if you don't have a very good compass. Mm. The Norwegian pension fund provides a relevant reference point. Famously, their approach is to exclude sectors or companies deemed unethical. For example, they walked away from oil quite recently. Uh, a little ironic for a major oil producing nation, let me note. Um, but this is not quite your approach, as you mentioned. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. My, my, I, I worked for MBIM. I helped them set this up many years ago, 10, 11 years ago. It's a long time ago. Uh, I'm not sure they've walked away from oil, to be honest. And, and if we're going to stick to that discussion just briefly, I the discussion actually came from a, a sort of financial viewpoint that they had an overexposure to oil mm. since Norway as a country obviously still is an oil producer and have exposure as a risk to, to oil. And then adding on to that, the fund was also invested in oil companies, mm. meaning they have quite a high risk profile uh, against oil. That was the background for the discussion for MBIM, to, to put it that way. But generally, generally exclusions, and, and this is an ongoing discussion, you know, walk away or try to change to see to the companies walk the talk. I think we have a lot of sectors, especially now looking at the climate transition, and, and we're talking about the transition decade. The 2020s is going to be the transition decade, or, or it is the transition decades. 
To be truthful, I mean, we're going to need oil for quite some time, time to come. The, the global economy is so uh, dependent on oil, it's, it's going to take a long while to transition away from oil. So we need good oil companies. We need oil companies that, that can manage both the transition, but also to get oil in a responsible way. Uh, so that's going to be challenging. And I think it's going to be a tough pill for a lot of stakeholders to swallow. I know my friends within the NGO sphere is, is quite upset about this and they want, you know, exclude all, divest from all. You know, there's very strong divestment movements. But I think the, the reality of things is that we need to work with these oil companies for quite a while to come. And I am and we are working closely with the oil companies on the transition plans. And just speaking today, Shell released its first sort of transition plan, giving a bit more detail on, on how they plan to transition away from oil over the next 10, 20 years. But obviously, it's going to be difficult for these companies to transition. Other oil companies have already started, and you can see the oil companies buying a large uh, large projects on, on wind and solar, etc., etc. But difficult and challenging discussions up and, up and coming. And does this emphasis on dialogue risk to be blamed as an all talk, no action approach? Well, I, I think I think we've proven over the years that we showcase uh, results, what is produced. I think the challenge people when it comes to what is the result of an engagement, what is the result of a dialogue? Well, the usual output that I get is a new policy can be a policy on transition, it can be a policy on human rights, it can be a new policy on deforestation in the Amazon. And people, they sort of expect more black and white things coming out of engagement. But I'm sorry, it's not really what we work with. I mean, we work with continual improvements. Mm. And I've been working with continual improvements for the last 25 years. And I can tell you, when I came back to ABB, and I was dark green, I was as dark green as you could, could be in the mid-1990s. I had my climate depression in, in the mid-1990s, taking the train back from Hong Kong, among, among many things I did. And they said, no, John, you're going to be working with continuous improvements. And I said, no way. We need a revolution. But I've spent 25 years on continuous improvements, and I'm going to spend my last 25 years on continuous improvements. I was about to say, does this come with age? Is it a wisdom thing? I think, unfortunately, and having done physics at university, I think the equation, and let's be honest, the equation of 10 billion people on one planet is going to be challenging. Mm. I really understood that during my trip to China in the early 1990s. And uh, look, there's not going to be any easy solutions. People, I, I, I don't blame people. A lot of people want easy solutions on this, but it's not going to be easy. Mm. It's, it's the biggest challenge mankind has ever seen or ever had in front of them. And, and we, need to, we need to manage this wisely. Uh, so it's going to be a very challenging time ahead of us. You are listening to the Natural Resources Podcast, today exploring the difficult question of ethics in investments. John Houchin argues that separating right from wrong is not always black and white. I want to look at the extractive specifically. In 2019, your council registered 15% of what you call incidents in the raw materials sector. That seems really high given that there are so many sectors. Are the extractives particularly problematic? No, 
I don't think so, but but it's a challenging sector. We all know that because people can see you you get sort of you you get something you can touch and feel something you can blame, and obviously, I mean, I've met so many communities that lives in the vicinity of of mines, and they can feel, they can see, and they can be critical of that mine. And I think that's that has always been the case, and that will always be the case. So you can't shy away from that. Having said that, mining is a very important sector. We can't survive without mining. Mm. So there will always be a challenge in that situation. Mm. And you mentioned climate change and extractives and climate change are linked. We need mining for the transition to a low carbon future. Are you thinking differently about extractives today? As you know, we've been with the investment tailings and mining initiative together with Adam Matthews at the Church of England Pensions Board. He and I, we've been engaging heavily with the mining industry post the Bromadinho accident. And we've decided to set an agenda as, you know, the 2030 agenda for mining. I think we need to have a thorough discussion because to your point, I mean, we're going to need quite a lot of new mines in order to, to produce the batteries, for instance, that are needed for the for the climate change transition. But it is a very challenging environment because you have a lot of NIMBY, not in my backyard. Mm. People are not very keen on on deep sea mining, to be honest. And and it's a topic sort of running behind the scenes. And uh, we simply need to become a lot smarter within mining. We need to develop new technologies. We need to develop peephole mining. It's a challenging equation, absolutely. And you mentioned the Brumadinho tailings um, collapse and which spurred global condemnation. Um, Do the pension funds, the Swedish pension funds, have investments in Vale today? No. So we were engaging quite extensively with Vale post the Mariana accident five years ago, Mm. which which was obviously Samarco co-owned by BHP and Vale. And I was actually down in Brazil to follow up with the local communities at Mariana, but also with Vale in Brazil about three and a half years ago. So obviously we were very disappointed and uh, and per- I was personally extremely upset about mm. the second accident at Brumadinho. I, 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 I took it very personal. But it was also an insight, I think, for many of us who are engaging with companies that we need to push, we need to push the agenda harder uh, and and uh, that's why we set up the, the Investor Tailings uh, Initiative. And that was an initiative, rather than passing judgment, a more hands-on approach to steer an entire industry. Are you expecting that you can educate an entire sector? And are you following the same approach in other sectors? Let's put this straight once and for all. I don't think we educate anyone. What we've been doing when we engage, and this is the way we operate since day one is that we take best practice. Mm. So you look at the sector and you say, this is best practice. Everybody can agree this company is doing best practice. And then then I ask the other companies in the sector, why aren't you doing this? Are you a worse company than this company? I don't see that. I, On the contrary, I see you doing a lot of great stuff. Why aren't you doing this? So, so basically best practice becomes the norm within that sector. So I don't think we're teaching anyone. We're just encouraging people to to bring in best practice. And what we do as well is that we take best practice from other sectors because I operate across all the sectors. And then we bring in best practice from sector Y 
into sector X and we say, look, over here in sector Y, they're doing some really smart things on human rights and child labor, for instance. You have the same issues within your sector. Why aren't you doing this? So no, I, I'm actually quite humble and there's some really brilliant mining companies out there. There's some really brilliant people within mining doing some really brilliant stuff. We don't need to, to invent anything. We just need to push the agenda. Mm. And philosophically, to what extent do investment decisions by funds influence companies' behavior? I think many pension funds, if they exclude a company, I think it hurts. I think it hurts within a company. I, I don't think, I mean, we're very cautious when it comes to the council on excluding companies. But when we decide to exclude, we want it to be something that is noticed. Otherwise, I think you lose a bit of that edge with exclusion. That's our experience. And today, there's so many investors. I mean, if you look at the UMPRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment, when we started it back in 2006, there was 40, 50 funds. Now we're over 3,000 funds within the PRI. I think companies want to be perceived as the good guys. They, they want to be perceived as the leaders, not the laggards. And what does it take for a company to win your confidence back? It differs. It differs on, on, the, on the magnitude of what has happened. And uh, I think as Vale can confess to, and we're having some really good discussions with Vale right now on what good looked like. Uh, but I think when it comes to Vale, uh, since a lot of trust was breached, and since we were heavily engaged with Vale uh, before Brumadinho, I, I think we, we will need a lot of evidence to feel happy on that one. And, and we spoke to the communities around Mariana just yesterday. And just looking five years on, Ventura Rodriguez and the other, other villages around Mariana, where I went to see four years ago, they're still not rebuilt. I mean, mm. it's quite ridiculous. I mean, Val is making so much money, even though they had a heavy fine now. You just have to understand that you, have, you need to clean up the fundamentals and you need to get going on. And I think Vale will, but it's taking all too, all too much time. Whereas other companies in other cases are much quicker. And, and to the previous point, the reason why we don't exclude so many companies is because in engagement, the majority of companies actually do what we ask them to do. They sort out their businesses before we reach the point of exclusion, which is the idea behind engagement. Mm. This has been a really interesting conversation. And before we go, let me go back to, to the overarching question on ethics. Um, we've been discussing what is ethical and what is not. Does it change over time, do you think? I think norms are changing as we speak. I think norms have been changing when it comes to, for instance, consumerism and uh, how we live, etc., etc. I think these changes are coming in, in certain parts of the world. I think some sectors are slowly being deemed unethical. I always say the council, we draw lines in the gray zones. That's what, <laughs> that's our job. It's basically our, our, our mantra. We draw lines in gray zones. And I, I think that gray zone is changing, to be honest. Mm. But society, I feel, is becoming more black and white. We are in an era of drastic, quick opinion making with social media and being very reactive, almost almighty at times. Is there a risk of a witch hunting? Absolutely. And we're back right now in a very sort of uh, divest discussion, which I, I don't believe in. 
I don't think divestment works. And we need to breathe in, especially when it comes to the transition, because right now the pendulum is swinging wildly in different directions, and it has for a while. A while back, we were talking about ethanol being the savior of everything, and it turned out, well, it's not, because we need to use all the farmland in the world to transition between oil and ethanol. And now batteries are are all the rave. But in reality, I don't think everyone can run around with an electric car and 500 kilos of batteries in that car, because it will have such an impact from the mining needed to get that. So we need to be smarter, and we need to be less black and white. We need to breathe in. A lot of my old friends within the environmental community are desperate and the climate crisis is really challenging the way they perceive the world. And you have Extinction Rebellion and and all these groups coming to to the forefront. But the realities of things is that this system is, is just so big, so intrinsic, and to transition this whole system is such a challenge. John, thank you very much for joining us in the Grey Zone today. Thank you very much, Osa. And thank you for joining us. Here are my key takeaways from today's conversation. Companies provide goods or services driven by consumer demand. By and large, whether these are ethical or not, is defined by the legal framework. But specific companies' performances and operating standards is more open to interpretation. Funding is what keeps industries going, and John Houchin argues whether it's mining or teddy bears, that producers are increasingly responsive to pressure from investors, and in turn, from society more generally. This podcast was done with support from the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development through BGR and the Inter-American Development Bank. Do subscribe to our channel on your podcast platform to be the first to listen to our new episodes. Next time, I'll be talking to high grades editors, discerning the main challenges faced by the natural resource sector in the years ahead. Until then, so long. This is high grade.